sometimes it seems we are more divided than ever before. Unable to speak across the differences, we must engage to create the world we want for ourselves and our children. On Being's Better Conversations Guide is a free resource and reflection for beginning this adventure, creating new spaces for listening, conversation, and relationship. Because the point of speaking together differently is to learn to live together differently. Go to civilconversationsproject.org and find the Better Conversations Guide in the Resources tab. Again, that's civilconversationsproject.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my extended conversation with Ellen Langer. Honoring our guest's request, we've excised a few minutes of this interview. Listen to our produced show with her wherever you find your podcasts and, as always, at onbeing.org. Hello? Oh, you're talking to me? Hi, yes, Dr. Langer. It's Krista Tippett. Oh, Krista, hi. Hi. It's great to have you at the other end of the line. Thank you. It's great. To, it's great to be had. <laughs> I've I've really been enjoying um, reading you and reading about you, and I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Um, do you do you have any questions of me before we start? Are you familiar with the show? Uh, not really, but um, I've done enough radio. You ask me, I answer. Okay. <laughs> this is the this one is not hard because if the answer isn't good, we can take it out. No, that's right. right? We get we get to have a real conversation that can be as non-linear as it needs to be, and then we'll turn it into an hour of radio. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, so, Chris... And then yes. I, I uh, sent a request to Lily. Yes, and I'm going to have... Um, and I had written that at the top of my notes. I'm going to have that in the introduction when I record the, the script. Wonderful. Yes, so not to Thank worry you. about that. Yeah, yeah. It's Hi, very... Jane. I'm the engineer here, and I just wanted to get you to say a few things just on my end. Like a few he, things like, just on my end. Yeah, how about Peter Piper picked? Oh, Peter Piper picked a pack of pickled peppers. We have an intense delay coming back to us, so everything's coming back. I'm assuming that you all aren't set up yet, but... Chris, are we... There it is. Beautiful. But... I was able to hear Krista uh, more clearly before. Yeah. Now I'm hearing all kinds oh. of echoes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, now it sounds like I'm in an echo chamber. And it sounds great for us now. Yeah, it sounds good. Sounds great for you. See, so one person's <laughs> Does echo Does it have to be an either or? <laughs> <laughs> um, We're going to have fun. Okay. Uh, now, there. Okay. Is, are, you, are you all clear on your end now? Hello. Are you, are you talking yeah. to me or yeah. the engineer? Yeah, you're not. You're not echoing. Are you hearing me fine? Yeah, I'm, it's fine. Okay, great. Well, then let's get going. So, just just a very you know elevator speech. You know, this show is about the great questions of life, what it means to be human, and how we want to live. And I think what you're studying and learning and articulating is you know just this amazing uh, you know very square in the middle of this amazing 21st century frontier that we're on of learning about this. Right. Um, I do always start my interviews by asking, uh, I, I wonder um, if there were, well, first of all, let me ask you this. Where did you grow up? I'm not sure I read that. 
Uh, New York. New York, okay. And was there a... And Westchester. Okay. And was there a a religious or spiritual or philosophical background to your childhood that had anything to do with what you now describe as mindfulness? I mean, was that there? No. No? No, not at all. Nothing at all. My parents were wonderfully supportive. Yeah. And uh, my mother was so supportive, she would have had me laminated if she could have. Uh, (laughs) I'm always (laughs) bragging about me. And I think it was um, because they were so supportive that I had the strength, courage, whatever, without feeling it that way, to ask questions and to be out in the world the way many others might have been inhibited. Mm-hmm. And when you do that and you find that you're so different from other people. Also, uh, people are constantly saying to me, um, uh, why are you smiling? Hmm. We should do this one on the air. And I would say to them, you know, immediately the smile would leave my face and I would feel, oh, my goodness, I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> and then, of course, I, I grew up and then it became, well, why aren't you smiling? And so I was aware very early on that most of the people I had the, um, uh, that I was meeting um, in all different environments were less than happy. Hmm. And that didn't seem right, you know. So right. my my life's career, in some sense, was to try to figure out implicitly what it was that I was doing, thinking, that led me to the kind of life I was having to see if it could be shared. So, so one of the things you've said is that most of us live mindlessly, virtually all of the time, and and yes. you say that with a smile on your face, but you mean it. Yes. And so- <laughs> oh, I mean it. <laughs> and I, I find that. Um, I'm not infrequently, not frequently, but not mm-hmm. infrequently, I too am mindless. Right, right. The only difference is when I'm mindless, my second response to that is, yes, I'm right. <laughs> the, <laughs> right. This mindlessness is pervasive. Well, tell me, how did you, how did you, you know, what, were, what was the experience or what was the context in, when you fir- in which you first started to identify this and put words to this observation? Um, I think it, uh, it's... There were elements before the event I'm going to tell you, but, mm-hmm. you know, where I would walk into a mannequin and say, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, people all the time press the button in the elevator, even though it's already lit up, uh, that there were things that people were doing that didn't make a lot of sense. But mm. I was teaching at the Graduate Center in the City University of New York, and then I went up to um, Harvard. And when you first come to Cambridge, if you're not from Cambridge, there's the expectation that... Uh, everybody walking around is very, very smart. Of course, that's silly, but I was young. <laughs> right. And um, I remember going into a bank, and uh, in the bank there were maybe five, six, seven tellers, and there were perhaps ten people on one line, three people on another, and then there were tellers where there were, nobody was on the line. And that would never have happened in New York. In New York, everybody's very streetwise. They immediately find the fastest way to get through the whole experience. And so that seemed strange to me. And, and then I kept noticing more and more things that seemed odd. Um, and it was clear that whatever was going on was different from intelligence. And um, then I started to do a number of studies that confirmed it, and it just kept growing. I mean, I've been doing this now since the early 70s. It's, it's very rewarding because the concept that I'm dealing with pertains to everything. As I'm fond of saying, whatever you're doing, you're doing it either mindfully or mindlessly. Mm-hmm. And the consequences of being in one state of mind or the other are enormous. 
So in study after study, we plug in, you know, we, we manipulate uh, this mindfulness um, and uh, change the measures from study to study. And almost no matter what we put in, that when we encourage people to be more mindful, we find enormous improvements. Well, so, le- okay, so let me ask you the question this way. Um, I mean, you know, John Kabat-Zinn is someone I've spoken with, and he's he's also been, he was working with this, and also also in his way taking it outside Buddhist practice. Um, but But I'm just wondering, did you ever investigate this mindfulness um, the way Buddhism talked about it? Or did, have you always just explored it, no, se- it yeah. separately? Well, actually, in the early 70s, um, I was studying mindlessness. Okay, okay. Um, and then, you know, and, and found and continue to find that oh, mindlessness so is pervasive. Yeah. Most people are just not there, and they're not there to know that they're not so there. So you went from that to this. So so, so how did you start? I mean, what, what was the first, what was the, all these studies you've done? I mean, just the the body of them is so They're, fascinating, right? <laughs> Elderly men imagining themselves twenty years younger, alcoholics, chambermaids. You've done work with vision. I mean, I I, I couldn't quite <laughs> find in all of this story. Like, how did it begin? What was the first thing you investigated that really set you off on this? Um, when I was a graduate student at Yale, I did a study with uh, Bob Rosen, uh, Bob Abelson, excuse me, where um, we had people ask for help. They asked the made the exact same request, but we varied the order of the words they spoke. So, for instance, uh, my knee is killing me. I think I sprained it. Would you do me a favor and um, call my husband? Versus, would you do me a favor and call my husband? My knee is killing me. I think I sprained it. So if somebody is listening, <laughs> you shouldn't get any difference because the same thing was spoken. Yeah. But we did get differences. I, I, an example that might be easier to understand uh, without taking too much time with this, we had people, um, again, somebody is feigning a knee injury, and asked the person if they would go into the pharmacy and get them an ACE bandage uh, versus would you go in the pharmacy and ask the pharmacist for, some, uh, for something that could be helpful. In the first instance, the pharmacist was always programmed to say they don't have any ACE bandages. Not a single person thought to ask, do you have anything else? Hmm. Hmm. And so there were lots of things like this mounting. In in another study in the 70s, um, we had people watch a videotape of a person being interviewed for a job. And the person on the videotape was uh, called either a job applicant or a patient. And it was shown to therapists of various uh, schools of thought. And when the person on the videotape was called a patient, the people who viewed him saw him as sick with latent this and that and all sorts of problems. When the very same person, the very same tape, yeah. was called a job applicant, all of a sudden he was fine. So again, that you know was showing me that people are led by language without realizing um, how imprecise it might be, how there are alternative viewpoints, and so on. And then the first uh, study that, where I, I spoke about mindlessness um, per se, the others were in terms of scripts, um, was a study where we had people make a request. Um, one was, excuse me, can I use a Xerox machine because I have to make copies? What else are you going to do with a Xerox machine? <laughs> and uh, so we have very different things, and most of the time people just said yes. They're not going to always say yes. If I said, excuse me, uh, can you give me um, uh, some help or give me a hand, 
I've lost my own or something. I don't know. People are not going to cut off their hands. Um, anyway, one of the things that we did with that um, was uh, we sent a memo around, and the memo said, please return this immediately to room 238. And uh, it didn't say anything else. So if someone were thinking about it, they'd probably reason, if the person who wanted this sent it, why did they send it? And that would lead them not to send it back or scribble a little note on it or something. Uh, that didn't happen. Everybody sent it back. Hmm. When I published the paper with a series of these studies, somebody had contacted me and told me that he knew of somebody who had put an ad in the newspaper that said, send one dollar to and gave his name and address. And he made over $20,000. <laughs> He offered nothing. <laughs> so, you know, and and the, the more I talk about these, the more examples people give me of their own experience. So, mm -hmm. so it was clear that um, we're not that there. We're on autopilot a lot. Yeah. yeah. And um, you're not going to be happy unless you're there. Oh. And when I um, address the difference between mindlessness and mindfulness, so since my mindlessness was leading in my thinking, there was no reason for me to, um, to appeal to anything Eastern. This was all a Western scientific notion right. that I was developing it. So interesting. And so mindfulness for me is the very simple process of actively noticing new things. When you actively notice new things, that puts you in the present, makes you sensitive to context. As you're noticing new things, it's engaging and turns out after a lot of research, that we find that it's literally, not just figuratively, enlivening. So um, the Eastern notions, I did research, uh, again, back in the 80s on transcendental meditation. And um, that's also, meditation is also useful, but it's, it's quite different, different ways of getting to the same place. Meditation, no matter what kind of meditation, is engaged to produce post-meditative mindfulness. Right, right. Okay, and um, the mindfulness as uh, I and my a students... It's a means to an end, and you're going exactly, straight to the exactly. end. Mm -hmm. and, exactly, so for us, you know, you're noticing new things, you're there. And I, I think um, somebody should, you know, should check this out. Um, I sh actually, I do with some of my students, that over the last oh, 10, maybe even 20 years that if you look at all of the um, different forms of uh, um, treatments to become more mindful, this means to the same end, that they have become more and more like what we've been studying from the beginning. Meditation that used to be required 20 minutes twice a day is slowly changing. Mm -hmm. But I find that what lots of these people do, and it's also part of folk psychology where you tell people, um, you know, be there, be in the moment. And as I, I said um, before, that when you're not in the moment, you're not there to know you're not there. So it's really an empty instruction. Um, well, and so, I think you uh, know some of the language you use is um, that's just slightly different. Uh, that's slightly um, original. Um, over against the slightly original. Excuse well, me. <laughs> no, very, very deeply original. But I mean, okay. I mean, original. It's nuanced in a way. It's sub yes. subtly different. So to talk about presence, I mean, it's not that you never use the term presence, but you you more often use the term noticing. Yeah, noticing. Well, because you can noticing. I, I new don't things, think yeah. you can make a decision that I'm going to be present. What does that mean? 
you know, so that the people who um, are, tell you to meditate, there's an assumption that over time that will put you in the present. But if you're actively noticing things, so you're going to go home tonight, and if you live with somebody, notice five new things about that person. It's very, it can be very specific. And what will happen is the person will start to come alive for you again. Mm. And that facilitates the relationship. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I think also that the, the, the way this flows into human relationship, the way you really spell that out and flush it out is, is very interesting. Um, and yeah, and, I th- yeah, yeah. Go Keep on. Going. No, well, sorry. just this, uh, you know, that you talk about um, that becoming present, present, present makes you present to context and perspective, and that and that context that that capacity uh, flows into your ability to navigate relationships, both personally and also in all the other places we have we deal with right. people I, like workplaces. Yeah, one of the uh, key components of uh, the work I do is the to try to get people to appreciate the importance of uncertainty. Right. And um, that we should be we should approach everything with uncertainty. Everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. So the intelligent state uh, of being would be to be uncertain. But we're taught by teachers, parents. Um, newspapers, probably even radio shows, you know, to look for absolutes. And people have the mistaken notion that uh, these absolutes exist, and if they know them, they're going to be better off. But what happens is once you think you know something fully, you don't pay any attention to it. So if it's changing, then you're, you're not there to notice and missing opportunities, whether it's in relationships or at work. But you know this uh, the, this this point you made a minute ago about how we're led by language. When yes. you, you also describe in a very illuminating way how um, how this begins or early early in our lives that you the unconditional way we learn in childhood we pick up rules before we have a chance to question them. Yes, we're given rules and facts and names for everything. Right. And, you know, so we're led to believe that there's a single way of viewing things. Mm -hmm. But then at some point, somebody tells us that um, there are other people that might have a different view. So we sort of acknowledge that. You know, if you say to somebody, is there more than, is there only one way of looking at things? Everybody will say there are many ways. But then they go through their lives looking at it from a single perspective. Uh, we really, we, we're afraid of uncertainty. And what I say in response to that is that we need to distinguish between what I call universal uncertainty and personal uncertainty. So personal uncertainty is, I don't know, I know I don't know, maybe you know, therefore I have to fake it in some way <laughs> or feel bad about knowing right. it or whatever. Universal uncertainty is an awareness, I don't know, you don't know. In some sense, we really can't know. And that then the interaction proceeds differently. And so in a, in a personal context, when you do something that seems to me to be um, not right in some way, hurtful, you know, whatever, that if I'm operating within this absolute framework, this mindless framework, I then draw all sorts of... Um, uh, make all sorts of negative attributions about you. I, I expect that you're this kind of person. I then label you that way, respond to you in the future that way, and it's almost impossible for you to break away from that. In this other um, way of viewing the world, where you really understand that 
you come to understand that people's behavior makes sense from their perspective or else they wouldn't have done it. Because so you're not clinging when, so tightly exactly. and in an unreflected way to what you think order and stability are about and what you think happened as though that's exactly. the only reality. Exactly. Yeah, and so then, then you come to see, I mean, if you just ask yourself, what sense does that behavior make? So you might see... Um, you might see me as gullible, um, but in fact, what I am is trusting. Mm-hmm. Um, I might see somebody else as somebody might see somebody as rigid, but what they are is stable. And when you do this, you can sort of imagine how all sorts of um, interpersonal conflict falls by the uh, wayside. Right, that all of the reasons you're you're fighting with this person or you dislike this person, whether it's at home or at work, now you might have disliked them because they were so damn impulsive, but now you see they're spontaneous. And, and Why that, are you so grim? Right, and that all comes from that comes out of this noticing, yes, which makes you more sensitive to context and perspective, and more able to bring those kinds of thoughts into your awareness and work with right. Them. And all of these things sort of conspire where each part is um, helping, facilitating the other. While you're noticing you're engaged, when you're engaged, you're attractive to other people, you're turned on, you're feeling, you're feeling good about yourself, about the world. Then your eyes are open and you will notice things and you'll be able to take advantage of opportunities and you'll also be in a position to avert dangers that haven't yet fully arisen. Mm. Um, when you're... Um, Uh, mindful in this way, in this act of noticing, what ends up happening also is you come to appreciate that um, evaluations tend to be in our heads rather than in the things we're evaluating. Right. Right. So at first I thought you were rigid. Now I see you're stable. You do enough of this. You come to see, well, wait a second. It's both good or bad, all depending on how I view it. And so it is for all circumstances that we experience. And so if it's the case that now I see that the things that are happening to me are a function of my view of them, I needn't be so afraid. So then I stand tall and I can go out in the world and... um, all sorts of good things are going to happen, and you know each part again, reinforcing the other. Can you um, sometimes you you do I think quite often work with um, uh, organizations, businesses. Yes. Can you and you you sometimes give very practical kind of uh, exercises, um, thought experiments to people to to put them into this mode. Could you share one or two of, two of those? Um. The short answer is no. <laughs> uh, nothing's coming to mind. Let me. Let me. Well, like okay, uh, I'll, I wrote some down. I mean, you know, for example, you said, I, yeah. Did you want to? Well, to imagine well, that I, your thoughts are totally transparent. Yes, just I mean, kind of yeah. a trick, a tactic. Um, right, right. That okay. So, if people imagine that their thoughts are transparent, and when I say this to some people. They get very nervous. Well, no, I would love it if um, if people were able to see exactly what I'm thinking virtually all the time. Then mm. nobody would misunderstand me. Mm. You know. So what does it mean that if you don't want people to know what you're thinking? It's probably you're not thinking very nice thoughts. 
And so if you saw your thoughts as transparent that this other person at work, let's say your um, employer, could see what you were thinking, that would provide a little extra motivation to approach the situation from a different perspective, more Mm -hmm. mindfully. And so rather than see the person um, as bossy, you might see them as concerned or whatever. Um, One of the things that um, I've recently spent some time with and have uh, started to write about uh, with respect to business is what I think is started off as uh, a a good idea where people would say you must have work-life balance. Right. And work-life balance is certainly better than work-life imbalance. (laughs) But I think that uh, the concept is basically mindless. And the reason for that is that we have these categories, work, life, and we have um, brains, brawn, um, you know, so on, all the different um, distinctions that we make. We make them mindfully and then we start to use them mindlessly, (laughs) forgetting that when we're at work, we're people. We have the same needs we had when we were um, on vacation, that when we're talking to people, the people we're talking to also have the same needs and so on. And I can elaborate on this in a moment. But the, the idea, I think, to replace work-life balance, which treats these categories as independent, is work-life integration. And you should get to the point where uh, you're treating yourself, whether you're at work or at play, in basically the same way, hmm. rather than leaving all of your fun time outside of work. I mean, uh, if I were to ask people one question to see how mindless they were, it might be, how much do you feel you need a vacation? Right. And it's and very what, yeah. sad to me that so many people think they need it. It's different from saying, you know, I've never been to Greece. Um, it would be fun to go. But to feel I need a vacation means I'm spending... 40-plus hours a day doing something that um, where I'm feeling stressed, unappreciated, I'm not being nurtured, it's unhealthy, um, it's, uh, it's sad. But you're, and I think that... Yeah, and you're also, I mean, I think you could objectively, you could rationally describe a lot of workplaces in, in ways that are negative or as places that are imperfect, but you're saying that nevertheless, whatever conditions people are working under, they can discernibly... Uh, make it more mindful. Make it more you know, mindful, I make was, it less stressful for themselves. Yes, just and I'll by talk about stress. Yeah. I'll talk about stress in a minute, but yeah. um, as an example of different kind of workplaces, I was visiting a friend who lived uh, in Manhattan in one of these fancy buildings that still have elevator operators. Mm-hmm. And, you know, which you know, all you need to do is press a button, but here they have a man in a uniform, typically a man. And um, I was watching him because the thought would be, Most people would go crazy doing this all day long. And I noticed that what he would do, I would say, I want to go to the 36th floor. He would say, okay. He would turn around, not face the numbers, and then, um, you know, hold on to that uh, handle that was going to uh, lead to the floor. And and then stop it. And what he was doing, essentially, was seeing if he could get there without looking. Could he figure it out well enough? And you can always make a game out of things. So even a task that seems so simple um, and potentially boring could be made more fun. Have you studied um, how th- this kind of change in the experience through 
just the language you're applying, whether it's work or play? Yeah, that um, what we we did a few studies uh, where we had people do things where they were given the label, either work or play, the exact same thing as with that video I told you before. Mm. They would be doing exactly the same thing, but in a completely different way. So, and, and in this particular study, it was interesting because what we had people do was to read and um, evaluate cartoons, jokes. So you would think that that content would have been fun. Right. Um, when they were doing it under the aegis of work, what happened is their minds wandered. Um, they didn't enjoy it. One of the ways we knew that was when we asked them how much they would need to be paid in order to do more of this, for example. They needed a lot more you know, than the other group who was just playing. <laughs> And, you know, we could make um, anything into a game. And in some environments, it's difficult because there are people who I think are very unhappy, uh, partly because they take themselves too seriously. Okay. And so you don't want to be joking, you know, uh, when you're talking to this person if they have a lot of power over you. But you want yourself never to take yourself too seriously and to know that whatever you're doing can be done in many different ways mm-hmm. and um, not to worry so much about not doing it correctly because most um, or many um, wonderful inventions come about through error. Mm-hmm. An error in one context is a success in another. But again, since people have such clear, mindless ideas of good and bad, right and wrong, correct and incorrect, that if they do something and it's incorrect, they throw it away, they feel bad, uh, they move on to something else. Um, rather than say, well, what else can I do with this thing? Mm-hmm. In what context might this thing be successful? Um, you also did this fascinating study with chambermaids who, if you looked objectively at the work they were doing, they were they were they were moving all day long, right? They were right. they were by any definition exercising, but they thought right. of it as work. And right. then it was also this example, wasn't it, where you changed the language and it actually had these incredible physiological effects. Yeah, um, it's interesting that you're pointing this out. I was just talking to one of my graduate students right before coming to the station. Um, about several other studies that we're doing on language, and it's uh, it probably runs through my whole career where mm-hmm. you change a word or two here or there, and you get vastly different um, effects. The chambermaid study was part of a series that I had begun um, back, I guess, started the research in 79, I remember, because we published it in 81, and that was first reported in the, you know, in this mindfulness book. That was the um, retreat study that you, um, right. the retreat study where I took old men to a timeless retreat that had been retrofitted to 20 years earlier um, <laughs> and had them live there as if it was the present, speaking in the present tense and so on. And um, I but as though I they think, were 20 years younger. Is, right, exactly. Yeah. And uh, the, the effects in, from that study were phenomenal, um, basically because these were really old people. You know, these people were in their um, mid to late 80s, but that's when 80 was 80, not the new 60. Yeah. And this was a long time ago. But So the, what drove that study was the same thing that drove the chambermaid study, and I can talk more about either one, Mm -hmm. but it's this idea, this 
call it the mind-body um, unity theory. So it occurred to me that mind and body are just words and that... You, you have a question? No, no, I was just... <laughs> you know, you I'm just, just you have I'm, a breath? <laughs> I'm, I'm breathing appreciatively, yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so it, it could have been mind, body, and elbow, and then we would have had a different conception of people. <laughs> right. And so it seemed to me that if, at least for heuristic purposes, just to be, you, you know, to see uh, um, how far we could push this, if we say that mind and body are one... We're no longer asking questions like, how do you get from the mind to the body? Which is itself interesting, you know, that um, the everybody, the, even though the medical world, way back, not that long ago actually, um, in the medical model, believed that the only thing that's going to affect the body as far as disease is concerned is the introduction of a pathogen. And that psychology mattered very little. Right. Uh, and now, you know, that's changed. But my view is more extreme than, um, than the way the medical world and some of the medical world and other psychologists studying this belief because they're still looking for the way the mind influences the body. But if we put them back together, then it's one. And it, the question doesn't make the same amount of sense. So what we do is we say, let's treat the mind and body as one. If we do that, then if we put the mind or the body, whichever way we want to talk about it, we put this thing in a context, both the mind and the body are in that same context. So the first test of this was this uh, study with um, elderly men where we're going to put their mind at an earlier time and see if their bodies cooperated. And um, as a result of uh, living in that environment, in this retreat we had set up for a week, their hearing improved, their vision improved, uh, their memory improved, their strength improved. At the end of this, uh, they were evaluated by people who knew nothing about the study as looking significantly younger than in comparison groups. So they, they, their minds pretended that they were 20 years younger and well, they we're hoping started that, yeah. to seem 20 years younger. Yeah, exactly. You know, but it's, it's not just, you know, when, when we talk about pretending, right, or placebo, we have to be right. careful yeah. because, you know, sometimes when you're pretending, you're aware you're pretending. Yeah. And so your mind is, you know, is in one place and that's where your body is going to be, not in that new state. But if you fully get into it. Yeah. So, friends, one of the things that I would expect, um, and I probably should do this at some point, is if you take actors that are playing the part of somebody very different from themselves and they're good actors, that if we took all the physiological measures, we would find they were the measures were more like the person... Hmm the role they were playing than the person, him or herself. That's so interesting, yeah. isn't it? So um, the, this counterclockwise study... Um, and that uh, was, the, was the men, the, the H, the H right, the, experiment. Right, the, um, mm-hmm. the people going back to the retreat, yeah. was then um, part of a, uh, the basis of a series that the BBC put together. Uh, so the study was replicated in England, <coughs> excuse me, and more recently in uh, South Korea and the Netherlands. And that, that feels good because those are such different cultures, um, yet it seems to, um, to work the same way. Well, and I, so, yes, and I think what should also be pretty remarkable for you is, I mean, you were doing this study, what did you say, 19... In the 79 was when we started right, it. But then, we, you know, you made this, this off-the-cuff remark a minute ago about how 
this is when 80 was 80 and not the new 60. And the fact is that now, 30 years on from when you started doing this study, yes. we have had this cultural transformation in our imagination about what it means to be 40 or 50 or 60 or 80. And literally, right. I mean, I feel like in the last 10 years, you know, 60 is not what 60 was. 50 is not right. what 50 was. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, and I think so, too. I mean, I'm not about to study the fact that, although I do find that amazing. No, but I mean, that, I'm saying that there's actually, that the, the culture, culture has is, borne out what you were, what you yeah. were, um, the question you were asking. Um, yes. Yeah. If we change our minds about it, would the body change as well? Yeah, and um, that um, if you just look at the activities that people are willing to engage right now. Yeah. Um, and then I think that if somebody wanted to argue, somebody in the medical world, for instance, that that's because they're eating better, which they may be, or they're exercising more. I think that if we took the people who were couch potatoes uh, eating their French fries on the couch watching television, uh, that we'd find that they also look and feel uh, much younger than the similar couch potato 20 years ago. Yeah, but I also think that... So that it can't that, be attributed to these other things. But I also think the reason, you know, people are taking up yoga or running at 60 because they don't, because they've decided that you can be fit when you're 60, and that's not mm -hmm. an idea that occurred to people 20 years right. ago. But, and that's kind of, and there's something interesting about that also. Um, I, think, I think yoga is wonderful. I think running is wonderful. I think that anything that somebody takes on to um, improve themselves that uh, without suffering if they're not doing it well enough or what have you is good. I think that there's a component of it that's not at all dissimilar from um, everything, this mind-body unity idea. Once I decide uh, that I'm going to start running because when I run I'm going to be healthy, now I'm believing I'm being healthy, and yeah. that should translate into greater health. What I'm saying is <laughs> many of these practices have a large placebo effect, and that the placebo itself uh, can be explained by this theory. You know, you had—this I found so interesting when I started to think about it—that here you have this wonderful, wonderful drug, placebo, yeah. um, that because of the way it was studied in the medical world— it was, you know, anybody who was trying to assess the efficacy of a drug was upset when it didn't outperform the placebo. Right. You know, that, um, however, that placebo was curing a lot of people. So it's, <laughs> it's a very, very powerful medication. Yeah. And um, I think that once we recognize, and if you think about a placebo, that here you have some person, usually an authority, so let's say a physician, giving you a pill... Um, which is a sugar pill. So for it to be a placebo means it's inert. It has no active ingredients, Yes, yet you get better. And so I want to know, why do you need somebody to give this to you right. if you're the one who's making yourself better? And so my work has been devoted to try to find a way over time in all these different studies to return that control over our health back to ourselves. Right. I think I think uh, it was a conversation I had with Esther Sternberg, who's an immunologist, about how, I mean, mm -hmm. all the placebo is doing is, is unlocking your brain's own pharmacy. But for some right. reason, we've never thought of placebo that way. You're right. We've thought of it as still this thing that doctors give that is illusory. Yeah. Not just illusory, that it was a bad thing. Yeah. 
you know, that if people early on, I don't think this would be the case now, but if people were told, and there's evidence for this actually, if people are told that the pill they took is a placebo, it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. You know, um, and then it doesn't think, work, right, if they know exactly, that. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know. Yeah, I want to ask you, there's such an interesting um, connection you make. And I, I think this, I think you make it in your work with business, but it seems to me it also comes in in your, in your thinking about creativity. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you're a painter, right? So, I mean, you, you, yeah. you also do this. You, you have a creative pursuit that's really important for you. And so I just want to tease that out, this out. It's the interplay... And tension between pursuing novelty, being engaged, and being flexible. Oh, um, I think that uh, there's no tension there that in pursuing novelty, the pursuit itself is engaging. And as you're pursuing it, you're seeing things from multiple perspectives, which would lead you to be flexible. Yeah. You know, that if I know that... Um, I don't know. Let, let's say I want, we, you and I are going to go out to eat, and I want, um, I think I want Chinese food, and you want to go um, have Italian food. Uh, that when I start thinking about Italian food, yeah, that's good too. So now we could have Chinese food, I'm happy. We could have Italian food, I'm happy. And then you call me flexible. Okay. Do you see what I'm saying? You know, once I start thinking through, if, if I just stay with, here, the example doesn't lend itself to all this conversation and make myself hungry. <laughs> but um, to stay with it a moment longer before yeah. I give up. That um, if I start thinking, if I dig in my heels that I have to have Chinese food, rather than ask myself, what are the, why do I want this Chinese food? What is it about it? And there are probably things about it and, and dishes that are not so dissimilar from what I would get if I were having, uh, you know, say if I were going to have Chinese food and I'd have chow fun, a noodle, and clearly I could get some kind of pasta in an uh, Italian restaurant. And um, so what happens is by thinking more about these things, you see the overlap, and uh, that allows greater flexibility. And when you are aware that the the that experiences are neither positive nor negative. It's whatever you make them to be. That also allows you to be more flexible. So, yes, you pursue novelty. That's engaging. It leads you to be flexible. And all of that also leads other people to find you more appealing. Okay. Right. Don't you want to go out to, with me rather than somebody <laughs> else? Because you can decide where we eat. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um I have to get back to the chamber maze because after we've eaten, we have, we have to oh, go back to the room well, we, to sleep. Well, they lost weight, right? Once <laughs> you lost, told them, yeah. once you said, well, let's just cut to the chase. Once you told them that, okay, so, that it was yeah, exercise, so the, they lost weight. Right. The, the, the same thing um, they've been doing every day and having diabetes oh, and being overweight. Is that, is that oversimplified? Right. No. <laughs> it's more fun when I say it, but okay. you did just fine. <laughs> Well, well, I want to I want to move on and talk to you about. You said something really intriguing a minute when we started about uh, believing that we are at an evolution in consciousness. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I would say this is kind of, you know, the, the mindfulness has emerged full blown as a, as a word suddenly that everyone in America knows. Yeah. Um, and I, I really enjoyed a, a blog post you wrote. I think it was a blog post you wrote about, uh, I think this was when Ariana Huffington was first talking about the third metric, maybe before the book was yeah. published, <laughs> right? And you went and you said, you said oh, and uh, it sounds like, a, 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 you know, a, a, you know, Katie Cork was there and Dr. Mark Hyman was there, who's now well known yeah. as the uh, Clinton's physician. Um and uh, and and they were all asking questions and batting this around. And you felt you said I felt like saying maybe shouting yes yes I couldn't agree more since I've been studying this since the nineteen seventies and making yeah. all the recommendations that were being presented as new. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I had an ego moment. <laughs> uh, it, it's funny because it's rewarding that when you know when you've been working on something and um, for so many years. I mean, I have now. Um, five books um, and uh, an edited uh, two-volume book in, about mindfulness. Um, and so all of a sudden, it's new to people. And it would be nice for me to, uh, to just enjoy that everybody is paying, not everybody, but there's so Lots much attention given yep. to it now. It, even if only that then people will be, become hopefully more evolved, not just use the word, but actually get deeply into this way of being, and then it'll be a nicer world. You know, so I can appreciate that. But um, it, on occasion, yeah, I think it was because when I was at that conference, I was oblivious to what was going to be going on. You know, oh, before I, you <laughs> went. You know, that, yeah. Well, I knew the people that were going. I didn't know everybody was going to be talking about mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And that um, mindfulness so, increases health, competence, and happiness. Yeah, which I mean, been, so it was just a yeah. very, it was, um, but... Anyway, so that was not one of my better moments. <laughs> but but say but some more again, about uh, this notion what? of evolution of consciousness. I mean, really, what well, you know, flesh that out? What do you mean when you say that? It's a big. Uh, it's a big statement. Yeah, it's a big statement, and you know, maybe it's um, it's too big for what I mean by it. Um, it's really just reflecting on what you said a moment before that you know, twenty years ago, or you know, let's go back to um, the seventies. Uh, early 70s, when I started this work, nobody was thinking in these terms. There mm. were, you know, monks out in um, yeah. in Asia meditating, and a few, you know, people here or there. But it really wasn't part of the culture. And um, now, as as you've said, it's very much a part where people have the expectation that they're supposed to live right, whatever that means. Uh, they're supposed to take care of their bodies. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, you know, one can pursue yoga mindlessly. One can even pursue meditation mindlessly. Right, right. But I think that, um, by and large, uh, the practices give rise to... Um, to people who are more aware, and of course, then if you um, if we can push it a little further, you know, I mean, there are a lot of people studying and practicing mindfulness as it's not a practice, taking on mindfulness in the way I study it. Um, I think uh, I was recently um, asked to rewrite a medical school curriculum to make the physicians and the whole medical establishment more mindful. 
And so as we do that, you know, um, that'll take us even uh, to another level. The more people that we can get on board to seeing that there's a world of possibility that most people are blind to, um, it you know, just creates a different life for all of us. So I think that the simple answer is that what I mean by that is uh, the almost zero one, you know, before people didn't know, now at least um, there are some that really know, others that are about to find out. And, and it leads to a very different um, way of being, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think 20 years from now, um, some things that people do will be unrecognizable, hopefully. Yeah. And again, I mean, I just want to, I just want to name this. I mean, you actually are not studying or talking about meditating necessarily no. or doing yoga or, um, no, or and being, I'm not, you know, being mindful as a practice. Again, I mean, your definition is all that's necessary right. is to seek out, create and notice new things. Right. Yeah, no, it's, um, I'm not disparaging any no, of no, the, right. the other approaches, but it is quite different. And, and, you know, if you thought about how to put it in place, that it's really much simpler than getting people to meditate. Um, and the two, the two are not mutually exclusive at all. One right. can do both. Yeah. But that if you wanted to make your company more mindful, that you could take time away from work and have everybody meditate or pay people if they meditate and so on. That, you know, that's not so easy um, when all you'd need to do is some structural changes in the company. Um, in schools or any of these places, the first thing would be to move from this model of everything is absolute and known to um, a truer state of it being unknown where people are um, encouraged to try new things and they're not so afraid of not getting the one right answer. Uh, Where people treat people at work the same way they treat people at home. People are people. We are aware that people have certain needs and we have when you know that behavior makes sense from the actor's perspective you come to appreciate other people relationships at work should grow um, it's um, it, it can happen right away and that's why I like this I, I coined this term to describe myself that I'm an anti-crastinator so <laughs> I, I don't seem to have the, the whatever it takes, the character, the patience, if we want to put it down, you know, to wait for things. I like <laughs> things to happen right away, and this can happen right away. And they're, they're probably, if we were going to compare again the, the two um, uh, ways mindfulness is out there, you know, mindfulness that results from meditation or mindfulness direct as, yeah, as I study it's kind it. of a daily um, moment-to-moment it, practice. Right. Yeah. And, and now I've completely mindlessly forgotten oh, where sorry, I was I'm going sorry. with that. I interrupted um, you. No, that's okay. The t- the, if you were going to talk about the differences between the two ways that are out there. Oh, yes, yes. Um, I, if I were to, you know, to consider meditation versus this direct mindfulness as I study it, I would say that um, for um, for those people who think, and and some people do, that unless they do something drastic, their life circumstances aren't going to change. Well, so if somebody's living in the West, oftentimes it's taking up a practice like meditation or yoga. Mm -hmm. You change your life in some big way, and then you have the belief, 
which has a placebo part of it, but it is wonderful to lead to all sorts of other big changes in your life. Um, for other people, uh, mindlessly as well, on the other side perhaps, that they get scared about things that are just too foreign. And so this whole idea of doing what these monks do doesn't feel right. So for them, they should start with mine. Hmm. I think that one should be doing both. Um, but uh, and there's an. It's good that we have so many people now from the the two different um, approaches. I was going to say camps, but then that sounds sort of warring, <laughs> yeah. which which is not the case. Yeah. Uh, doing this to enlist more and more people into this way of being. Um, you know, I this is something from your. Believe from your mindfulness, your book Mindfulness, um, you talked about doing a sabbatical at Harvard Business School, and that um, the students or faculty there um, helped you kind of distill your you how you apply this to business into two sentences. I just I thought they were really helpful. Mindlessness is the application of yesterday's business solutions to today's problems. You know, they didn't come up with that. Oh, they didn't. They didn't. <laughs> no, <laughs> but they helped you. They helped you formulate these sentences, right? Or you said okay, yeah, you formulated sure. yeah. them there in that context. And mindfulness is attunement to today's demands to avoid tomorrow's difficulties. Yeah, did I say that? Yes, no, I did. <laughs> um, and and yes, I'm sure that you know that uh, uh, spending these a semester over there, I was teaching a course to their junior faculty. And um, it was interesting because they approach problems so differently. But um, it did make me more aware of the concerns of business. And, um, yeah. yeah. And the problem, again, as you, as you said, that uh, businesses are typically applying um, yesterday's uh, solutions to today's problems. And um, I think that... In this search for the solution, they in this mindless search, they tend to miss what's often right in front of them. When I give talks um, in businesses and I'm trying to get people first to appreciate how mindless they are, what I do is I, I give them many examples. Um, for, for example, even a simple thing like I might ask, how much is one in one? And I know there are people that are listening to this. They're saying to themselves, oh, God, are we going to have to listen to a whole hour of this? You know, thinking that, oh, anyway. And, you know, so then they obligingly say two. And then, then I inform them that no, one in one is sometimes two. It's not always two. And I give them different examples. The, the easiest one to understand is if you take one wad of chewing gum and you add it to one wad of chewing gum, right. you get one. Right. Um, and so it is with each of the things. So I think that a mindful rule, and I do this in industry, um, but it can be done um, for everybody at, at almost any time, is to entertain – people tend okay, – some of the early research I did was about hypothesis-confirming data searches. So you have an idea. So what does that belief, mean, hypothesis? Okay, I'm just going to tell you. <laughs> okay, right. you, have a, you have a belief, and then you seek out a confirmation for it. You know, so you think uh, Susie is untrustworthy, and then you find all okay. the instances where she was untrustworthy or – okay. So um, the – you're always going to find you're right when you ask these questions. And so the more mindful approach would be to ask the question in both ways. 
how is it this way and how is it not this way? Am I, if I ask, am I going to um, succeed, I can find evidence for it. If I ask, am I going to fail, I can find evidence for it. Um, and people tend only to, to look at things in one way. So, so it leads me... Yeah, keep going. Um, no, I should let you talk on occasion because well, I can yeah. go straight well, through. <laughs> if, well, no, because I... No, so, so, yeah, I think you were going to say what that, you know, what, what you can do with that. With, well, with what, that I, what I was going to yeah, what mm-hmm. I was going to say was um, that this pertains to stress, and we we talk a lot about stress when um, both in my lab and then in uh, business contexts. Um, that for anybody, when there's stress, there's an assumption that they're making that something is going to happen. Number one, and that when it happens, it's going to be awful. Yeah. And you want, and the, both of those are mindless. You want to open it up both ways. First, the belief that it's going to happen, all you need to do is ask yourself for evidence that it's not going to happen. And you always find evidence for whatever you ask yourself. Okay. okay so all you right. have, so, well, you know, you know, I'm going to be fired. Yeah. Okay, that's the belief. Um, and if you say to yourself, what is some evidence that you're not going to be fired? And you will find it. Mm-hmm. You'll find that, oh, you know, the boss smiled at you the other day or you were given this assignment or, gee, I'm working as effectively as Pete over there and he's uh, not worried about being fired and, and so on. Right. You find evidence. So you started off with the belief that um, this thing is going to happen, and now maybe it will happen, maybe it won't happen. And then nothing, um, or let's put it positive, everything cuts in multiple ways. Again, that evaluation is in our heads, not in the things we're evaluating. So you say, if this thing happens, what are the advantages of it? So let's say that I am fired. Well, you know, if somebody is worried about being fired, then uh, they're the person who's going to need a vacation, the person who doesn't feel valued, um, and it's a terrible way to spend one's life. And so um, it might be a blessing in disguise, as with a relationship. Mm -hmm. You either make the relationship work or get out of it. Life is short. Um, And so you end up here now with this thing was going to happen and it was going to be awful, and of course that's stressful, to maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, and when it happens it'll have good parts and bad parts, and it's just much easier to go forward then. I have a one-liner with that, you know, sort of no worry worry before it's time. Right, yeah. I I remember um, Eckhart Tolle saying um, that stress is all about not wanting whatever is happening to be happening, that that is the stress, which is another way of describing what you're talking about. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think it's more not about what's happening, but it's it's about the presumption the res- of something that's going to happen. Yeah, the resistance to the fact, to the very fact that it's happening. Yeah, but what I'm, and that's what I'm arguing. Oh, okay, what that, are you saying? You know, I'm, what I'm saying mm-hmm. is that I think stress f- follows from the belief that this future event will happen. When you're in the middle of the event, you're dealing with it one way or the right. other. You're, you know, right. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that 
Um, it goes back in some sense to Epictetus, who said, not in English and not with my accent, but that <laughs> events don't cause stress. What causes stress are the views you take of events. Yeah. And once people can appreciate, you see, right now, almost everybody is mindlessly driven by these absolutes. And part of these absolutes are these evaluations of good or bad. If it's good, I feel I must have it. If it's bad, I must avoid it. Hmm. When it's neither good nor bad, I can just stay put. Hmm. And just be. Hmm. So we get a lot more control by recognizing that the way we're controlling our um, our present and our future. You um, you you write in an interesting way about about time. I mean, you just said you know our present and our future, and how our our perception of time itself it it, it plays into this. Yeah. Yeah. Um. um well, and there are several studies that we're doing right now. One I can tell you about because we just completed it, although um, we haven't analyzed the data yet. Otherwise, I couldn't tell you because subjects might be listening. Okay. But it's a study okay. about time where we have um, – remember, we, just to underscore this, that my belief is that our beliefs are not inconsequential – it's not that they matter a little, that they're almost the only thing that does matter. Mm-hmm. It's a very extreme statement. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that if you were going to say what matters, real or perceived time, to me it would be perceived time. Right. So let's say we have you in the study, which we did. Um, you go to sleep, you wake up, and you see the clock. And the clock for half of the people is running twice as fast as normal. I'm not for half the people, for um, a third of the people. For a half, the clock is slowed down. For um, the last third, it's accurate. So what that means is that upon waking, a third of the people will think they got, let's say, two hours more sleep than they got, two hours fewer sleep than Hmm. they got, or the amount of sleep that they actually got. And the question is, when you're then given biological and cognitive psychological tasks, do these tasks reflect real or perceived time? And clearly, I believe that, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you think that you had a good night's sleep, you're ready to go regardless of how much sleep you actually had. You know, up until a point, of course. Mm -hmm. And that, I I, I think that's, this is such an important, there's, there's, you know, somehow our perception of time, especially, you know, in this moment where the pace of technological change seems to be so fast. Um, yeah. Is a, it really plays into, and, and, and as you're saying, our perception of time as this bully plays into a lot of <laughs> stress, whether it's how we think about multitasking or procrastinating, right? All these things are involved right, with right. our relationship to time and deadlines. And Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we might do uh, when we're so worried about what's going to happen in the future is to think about all the times we worried in the past and the thing didn't happen. Right. Uh, but I know a lot of people now that there's so many baby boomers that there's a lot of concern for older age. Mm. And what people don't realize is that there's so much that's changing that just as the 80-year-old uh, 20 years ago bears little resemblance in many ways to the 80-year-old today, so too for those of us when we're 80. 
will not be the 80-year-old we're worrying about right now. Right, right. So there's so many things that, you know, that we can't know, so many things that will be different. Um, you know, that I, I think I saw something that people who are born today should expect to live to 125. I always <laughs> laugh when I see those things because, yeah. you know, why not 150? And, <laughs> or why not 124? Um, you know, yeah. Well, okay, you're right. <laughs> but but for me, I want to live as long as my money will hold out. <laughs> well, well, okay. So so I really I want to ask you. Um, what did you say a minute ago? That this the, the way you do this, this direct mindfulness, right? This is what mm-hmm. you study. This is what you preach in your way. And so so what? So just take us through. Like, what is how? What is this? application of direct mindfulness and all these things you learn look like like in a you know a day in the life oh ellen langer um, do you say langer let me just get that is it longer yeah, or langer it's langer okay yeah so a day it's in been the langer life. longer than longer no, it's, <laughs> <laughs> yes it's ellen langer um i think that uh because of uh this mindfulness that i can personally walk around with a smile on my face um, without having to justify it, but that um, what happens is that I'm not afraid of uh, very many things out there because um, I'll be able to handle it. I'm not going to give up today worrying about tomorrow. And that's that I don't want to get into an argument with economists, which I could about you know putting money away for the future and so on. It's this is a, a, at a different level of analysis. Okay. But that much of the worrying, almost all the worrying we engage in, is about something about tomorrow when um, we can't predict what tomorrow is going to what tomorrow is going to be like. But you say you know you you say and write again and again that this is easy. Yes. Um, okay. So, but I'm it sorry. doesn't sound yeah, easy, right? Well, it, well it, and is it no, something? It, does it get easier with time? Is it something yeah, that you've yeah. learned? Yeah. Um, I think um, it 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 is easy. It's not easy to you know. We do this for five minutes, and then. Uh, you know, with respect to one kind of content, and then your whole life is going to change, although that could happen. Um, but, you know, the, the practice, I said to you, you know, just go home or, you know, call somebody on the phone or uh, when, when we stop now, go see somebody in the next room and notice new things about them. Mm-hmm. And this person that you thought you knew will, you know, will feel different. Um, that in doing that, you will feel um, uh excited and that person will respond to you differently and this happens instantly mm-hmm. you know that if you are doing something that is difficult and you say to yourself what am i so worried about um, what are the positive things that could happen by my not completing this or how can i make this into a game um mm-hmm. you know that um why is it that I think my life depends on whatever this thing is? Because very rarely does our life depend on on any particular um, action. You know, I could have said to myself, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be speaking to Christy for an hour. I don't know what she's going to ask me. Um, I could blow my whole career in this one hour. And I could have gotten myself, you know, but of course it's so silly. Mm-hmm. But, Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, you know, that and, and, people live a life that is ongoing, but treat it as if whatever's happening at the moment is the last opportunity they're going to have. Right, right. And But are those instincts that have become... You know, 
um, have, have they become has this kind of way of thinking and st- stopping, uh, yeah, being mindful? Has this become more instinctive for you over time? Oh, uh, yes. Um, you know, surely the, the more mindful you are, the more mindful you're going to be. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it sort of um, snowballs, I think. I don't know how much you need for it to be sort of steady state, but, um, and I said before that I too, you know, do things mindlessly. Yeah. Um, the, um, but I think that what happens is that when you're, when you're on automatic pilot, you're not enjoying whatever you're doing. So if people just said to themselves, you wake up in the morning, you say, everything I do today, I'm going to enjoy. No matter what. No matter what. And so then you come upon, so when you're enjoying something, you know, then it's easy. And then you come upon something that you're not enjoying and you, you know, address it directly. How can I make this enjoyable? Um, Maybe I shouldn't even be doing it. Mm-hmm. If I can't, you know, I tell my students, it's like going to a movie. When you're in that movie, you make it fun for yourself, make it interesting, or leave. Hmm. That you don't sit there for two hours and then walk out complaining unless that's the part that's fun for you. Right, right. You know, that, um, so, you know, so if you say you're going to make things work, then when they're working, there's nothing to do. When they're not working, then this, these strategies provide a solution for them to work. You know, you can't, if they're not, you know, you have a fight with somebody, you don't sit down and meditate. That's not going to resolve the fight. Right. What's going to resolve the fight is to think differently about the whole circumstance, to remember that what this person did made sense from their perspective or else they wouldn't have done it. What you did made sense or else you wouldn't have done it. So it's easier to have the conversation um, that uh, I think... That you become, you know, you're less worried about the conversation going awry because you're, you have a, a more expansive view of time. You know, that mm-hmm. your life is ongoing. It's not going to depend on each and every action that you take. Um, right. It's not you, ultimate. Uh, Nothing's... Right. Yeah. And, you, you know, you're without, you, if you have this fight and you're all worked up and you, you know, then if you see yourself as stressed because of it and then you apply the rules that I already said, which is, you know, are you sure that the person feels the way that you're saying the person does? Right. Ask yourself how it could be otherwise. What are some of the advantages? You know, sometimes um, going through these things allows uh, friendships and relationships to reach a new level of intimacy. <clears throat> I think that they could be reached in other ways, but still. Um, so, you know, the, um, it's very striking that the American Psychological Association has said of your work that it has offered new hope to millions whose problems were previously seen as unalterable and inevitable. How do you think about how the field of psychology and maybe other fields with which you're interacting are changing because of this kind of study and insight? (laughs) I think that, um, you know, that it's very hard to to actually know of one's influence, even when somebody says, and and people have said, you've changed my life. I, you Mm -hmm. know, once I had ran into somebody who had, um, I had helped, uh, I did therapy, uh, saw patients for a very short while, and I, three years later, ran into this person, and she told me I changed her life, and I was curious about how I did that. Yeah. And, you know, she had told me I had told her something, which I couldn't imagine in a thousand years ever saying. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> so, well, on the one hand, it's nice to uh, to assume that everything that's unfolded in the world is a function of me. My, my smarter self says. <laughs> well, okay, uh, but let probably, me ask the question this way. I mean, you know, yeah, you, ask you're, it differently. you're part of you're part of a you're part of a larger movement. You made a huge contribution to something that, as we've said, yeah. is spreading and and finding new vocabulary and new corners that it wasn't in before. But I mean, let's let's set the question this way: Will, will therapy? Uh, you know, twenty years from now or a hundred years from now, be resemble at all what 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 was in Woody Allen movies? Uh, you know, which remains the kind of stereotype of what therapy yeah. is uh, a couple of decades ago. Um, I think probably not. I think it's already changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that many many years ago, I had uh, said, um, I, and I. I I think I wrote this down, but uh, even if not, that therapy should be divided into two parts because you have therapists who, uh, and I believe this, although this is without science behind it, but that it's very hard to be a therapist if that's all you're doing, if you're not also have an academic position, whatever, unless you yourself are working through your issues. And so we have people who can say to you, in a sophisticated way, that I know how you feel and you'll be okay. But they're not the same people who necessarily can tell you how to get on with it right. and what actually to do to be happy. Right. So they can get you from being unhappy to neutral in some sense. Okay. So what happens is now we have a new discipline of uh, coaches, and that's where they take off. And so, you know, I'm, many of the people who are seeing coaches would have been people who would have been in therapy in the past. Um, right, right. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, and, I'm and sure that there will be many changes in the future. But uh, I mean, it seems like psych- psychology. Well, I mean, I'm, this is. I mean, this is not my observation. I mean, it's behind a lot of you know, like Richard Davidson's work, for example. I mean, that that a lot of um, psychology and psychiatry was so focused on pathology. Um, you're also you're focusing on taking charge, of, yeah, no, and I'm making from the each very moment start. what you want it to be in a positive sense. Yeah, no, the the work. Um, yes, uh, now I understand what you're asking me. Yeah, yeah. When I started doing research, the field was consumed with problems. Right, and right from the start, uh, my research was about well-being. And interesting that. Um, it was too soft a word to talk about happiness. So I talked about well-being. And the mindlessness that when the field starts talking about happiness, they didn't realize that I had been doing it 20 years earlier, but that's okay. You know, but that from the start with with elderly people and we're giving them choice to make them independent, and that was eventually going to be uh, understood as this mindfulness, um, that uh, they live longer, they were happier, they were healthier, and so on. Mm. Um, I think that things are progressing in this way. That surely now we have um, a whole field of positive psychology. Yeah. And I think that um, my, my last book, the um, uh, Counterclockwise book, the subtitle, The Psychology or the Power of Possibility, is still a little different and something that may hopefully um, uh, shape some part of the future Mm -hmm. where instead of describing what is, even if we're describing it in a more positive way, that we create what we want it to be. And so 
you know, I, I have this book that uh, I'm going to remind me to tell you about the Langer Mindfulness Institute, and it's on okay. that website that this book will be. Okay. But it's a book of one-liners that are paired with paintings of um, of mine. Yeah. And... Um, um, while you recollect your thought, I, I want to say, I think it's really important, you know, when you say, you know, this sentence that you spoke just a moment ago about, you know, that we think about what is, instead of thinking about what is, what, oh, yes. it's what we want to be, what is possible. And that can, out of context, you know, we, we hear a lot of language like that now in kind of the self-help genre that can be quite, that can be thin. But you mm-hmm. say that as a scientist who's been yeah. actually seeing this actualized, yeah. um, this yeah. So power where, of where I was headed, yeah. But so that in this uh, book of one-liners that's called a Mindful Life, you know, I have uh, one of the liners. Uh, one-liners is um, and not or. Which is a whole right. different way of yes. thinking. Wonderful. You know, to, uh, yeah. Another one is ask: Is it a tragedy or an inconvenience? Because most of the time, when people are upset, they're reacting as if it's a tragedy, and just yeah. asking yourself that question yeah. tends to calm you down. Yeah. Uh, the way we talk to ourselves is crucial. So that again, back to uh, the study of language. Um, Many years ago, I, I talked about the difference between can and how can. It seems so similar, but they're vastly different. When you ask yourself, how do you do something, you're bypassing your ego in some sense. You're just out there examining, fiddling with things, trying to find the solution. If you ask yourself, can you do it, then all you can appeal to is the past, and in the right. past, if you're asking the question, you probably haven't done it. Right. And um, so with lots of things, when people say, um, you know, people can only do A, B, or C, the first thought in my mind is always, well, how do we know that? How could that be? I ask my students um, that, I say, how fast is it around the time of the Boston Marathon? Right. And I'll say, how fast is it humanly possible to run? And, you know, these are Harvard students, so they're going to know it's not 26 miles. It's got to be a little more, whatever. And they, they do some strange calculations because these are wonderful kids. They, they come up with things like 28 miles, 20, you know, 32.5. Who knows? Um, and then I, I tell them about the Taramora in uh, Copper Canyon in Mexico. And these are people who are, without stopping, running 100, 200 miles mm. a day. Mm. Mm. Or, um, and, you know, so um, that if you say, I had this discussion with a friend of mine when we were both part of the medical school division on aging, and um, I called him one day and I said, how long would you say, he's a physician, it takes for a um, broken finger to heal? Um, and so he said, I'll say a week. I said, okay, if I said to you, I could heal it by psychological means in five days, what would you say? He said, well, all right. I said, what about four days? He said, oh, okay. <laughs> I say, what about three days? He says, no. I said, okay, what about three days and 23 hours? <laughs> okay, the point being, yeah. you know, when is that moment that on this side you can, on the other side you can't? Right, right. And, um, you know, so that we need... 
in the Counterclockwise book, I talk about what I call um, Langer's reverse Zeno's paradox. <laughs> Zeno was a philosopher who had this paradox with respect to distance, that if you always go half the distance from where you are to where you want to be, you're never going to get there. You get closer and closer, you know, so now you're an inch away, but if you go half the distance, then you're a half an inch away, then a quarter of an inch, then an eighth, you'll never reach there. I think he must have been a cynic. So my view is that there's always a step uh, from where you are to where you want to get uh, that you can take. And if um, you, you know, you can't get yourself not to eat a, a box of cookies, get yourself not to eat... Um, you can't get yourself, let me say, if you want to eat one cookie less and you can't, so eat a half a cookie less. You can't eat a half a cookie less, eat a quarter of a cookie. You know, there's always a point where you can, where you can. Uh, be successful. Yes. And then you increase. So that's, you know, you establish a new base rate for yourself. Um, I think that what happens in science often, or sometimes at least, that people see experience, they they get data, they have a sense of something happening, and then they create theories uh, that, you know, uh, to explain why it happens that then make it seem like it has to happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's all sort of um, a, a series of concatenated probabilities. And what am I saying to you? It's like a house of cards. You know, you start, you have so many levels that we're all tentative, that we're treating as absolute. Right. And so I say, you know, the vision study, for instance, which was another one like the chambermaid, which I should probably say more about, uh, based on this mind-body unity idea, that why do we know, you know, what makes us think that we can't see better than 2020? And that as you get older, your eyes have to get worse. Where does this come from? You know, and so for me, we try to reverse it. So we did this fun study where we, you know, everybody has had their vision measured by a Snelling eye chart where the letters get progressively smaller. And implicitly what that means is that soon you're not going to be able to see. So all we did was reverse it. So the letters get progressively larger, therefore telling you that soon you will be able to see. And And when you think you will soon be able to see, you can see what you couldn't see before. So it made um, a it, it made a discernible difference physiologically. Yes, yes. So I mean, it strikes me that that there are also really civic public life implications to this. Yes. Um, yes. You know, and I was thinking about it. I mean, because if you think about the fact that in our public life, um, which is something I f- uh, puzzle over a lot, we um, we tend to only ask the can we, right? The yes, no question. And then we argue the yes or the no. Mm-hmm. And we actually don't create a lot of possibility right. um, on really important subjects. Yes. Which is, it's, I yeah. mean, so I think you're putting think, that in a different context, which is really interesting to think about. Yeah, I think that uh, here's another one that will sound strange, but I'm against compromise. Yeah. What? Because <laughs> the compromise sounds so mindful. Okay, say some more. I like and the, it. Well, the reason for that is because it's an agreement for everybody to lose. It's just reducing your losses. Yeah. You know, rather than finding the win-win solution, 
which is often out there. So if you ask, you know, you, you want to get better answers, you have to ask yourself better questions. Mm-hmm. And so the question is not either or, you know, uh, zero, one, I win or you win, or how do we, you know, minimize the loss, but how can we do this, whatever the this is, so that everybody wins? Hmm. And that's the most effective business arrangement, you know, that uh, there are people who go into business and think that what they'll do is, um, you know, cajole people to get them to buy things they don't need or to do sign contracts that are not good for them. <clears throat> the I think that the way to conduct business is the same way to conduct all of your relationships where everybody should win. Everybody should walk away from the table feeling good, mm. not trying to minimize losses. Well, it seems like we could talk about that for another hour. Um, we're, we're, we're coming close to the end. I, I, I think I just want to ask you a final kind of big question. Um, you know, uh, talking about becoming mindful is, is also really talking about becoming conscious and, yes. ta- and asking the question, how can we live well um, is re- is an existential question. It's a it's a variation, you know, if you will. It's an evolution of, of this question that's been passed through human history. So, I, I just wonder how this work you do, you know, makes you think differently about that big question of what it means to be human and what we may be learning about that that we haven't grasped before. Yeah, interesting. Um, well, I th- I was going to write a mindful utopia. Uh, at one point, and and eventually maybe I will, and and give this sort of question um, real thought. But um, I think that most of the ills that people experience as individuals, as uh, in their relationships, um, in groups, in cultures, globally, and that's a, that's a very big statement. Yeah. Virtually all of the ills are a result of mindlessness, one way or the other, directly or indirectly. And so that as the culture becomes more mindful, I think um, all of these things will naturally change. You know, on the cultural level, people are fighting over limited resources, but resources are probably not nearly as limited as people mindlessly presume. Um, people's egos are at stake even, you know, when they're, uh, while they're, negotiating um, on the level of country. And um, they're not looked at in that fashion and uh, approached in that way. That when you have people going to work, feeling good about themselves, and the work life is um, exciting for them, fun for them, nurturing for them, they're going to be doing more work and they're going to be less evaluative of other people. And once we all start feeling less evaluated that allows us to to become more creative, mindful, take more risks because they're not very risky, and uh, to be kinder in our views of other people. Hmm. So um, I think that uh, this change leads leads to just a, a nicer a nicer world. Ultimately, I think that for me, what it means to be human is to uh, to feel unique, but to recognize that everybody else is also unique, and um, that it's not a zero-sum game. And I think that people, right now, I think people feel that 
being happy, really happy in this in this deep way that I'm referring to, not that you've just won an award or bought mm. something new or whatever, um, that um, that they think that this is something that one should experience sometimes. You know, maybe if you experience it a little more than other people, you're one of the lucky ones. Where yeah. I think it should be the way you are all the time. You should be smiling all the time and not to have to ask for, um, not to apologize for it. And that, but I mean, I mean, so you, you know, you said a while ago, you know, most things are an inconvenience rather than a tragedy. There are tragedies. So, um, so what is this happiness? You know, how how does this well, way it's of being function yeah, in those yeah. moments? Um, you know, it, it's hard with some of the current events when you have these girls in Nigeria yeah, being abducted. You know, yeah. to to um, not talk about uh, tragedy, but if the people who did the terrorist act were mindful. I don't think it would have it would have happened. Um, so you know, so the tragedy or an inconvenience is is dealing really for most of your listeners' lives most of the time, which is you know um, the kinds of things that people get crazed about are are really just inconveniences, mm-hmm. and that. Um, let me uh, give you an example of something. Many years ago, I had a major fire that does. Um, destroyed 80% of what I owned. And um, when I called the insurance company and they came over the next day, uh, the person, the insurance agent, had said to me that this was the first call he had ever had where the damage was worse than the call. And, you know, and I thought of it. I thought, well, gee, you know, it's already taken my stuff, whatever that means. Why give it my soul? Mm. You know, that uh, why pay twice, which is what people so often do. Something Mm. happens. Mm. You have that loss. And then you're going to now throw all your emotional energy at it. Um, And so you're you're doubling up on uh, the negativity. Mm. Um, And interesting, you know, to go back to how would you take a tragedy and make and and see it, you know, because we can say the fire was not a a simple little thing uh, that I stayed in a hotel for a little while. I had two dogs with me. So I was a a vision as I walked (laughs) through the lobby every day uh, while my house was being rebuilt. And it was Christmas when this happened, um, a few days before uh, Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve, I left my room. I come back many hours later, and the room was full of gifts. And it wasn't from the management. It wasn't from the the owner of the hotel. It was the so-called little people, the people who parked my car, the chambermaids, the uh, waiters. Mm. Um, it was you know it, it was marvelous. Mm. It, you know uh, to think that people you know people's best motives. I think when you strip away all the the mindless insecurity people um, are quite something. Mm. And, uh, you know, so I reflect on that. I couldn't tell you anything that I had lost in the fire, you know, but at this point I have that memory that was more than positive. Mm. So sometimes the, you know, the ways that uh, things unfold can, can take place, you know, over a longer time. Uh, well, I think that's wonderful. Um, it's a wonderful story and it's, uh, 
It's been a really terrific conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it, too. Um, I have. Yeah. So, And we, we'll let you know um, when we're going to put this on the air. I believe it's going to be in June sometime. And uh, Lily, my producer, who you've been in contact, she might have some reach out with you for some uh, reach out to you with some questions. But yeah, you know, thank you so much. 